Well, good morning. Happy uh, winter morning today. Um, Super Bowl Sunday. Go Seahawks. Um, special welcome to those who are joining us at, um, at uh, Crossroads in Highland Park in the 01. Everybody gets credit for making it here this morning. Um, good Chicago moxie and know-how. Um, we are returning to this topic of revolution. A couple years ago, I went with a friend to uh, Turkey uh, to tour the biblical sites. It's because Turkey isn't called Turkey in the New Testament, it's called Asia Minor. Lots of people are surprised at how many of the New Testament sites, Paul's birthplace, the churches of Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae, most of the uh, seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, all of those are in modern-day Turkey. And uh, so we went for a tour and had a wonderful Muslim tour guide, very wise, winsome. Uh, he was taking us around all the sites, and we're just prying him with questions. And after a couple days out at the sites, he brings us back into Istanbul um, in the evening. And he says, if you're going to go out tonight, you know, I need to go with you. And we're like, oh, forget it. We're, we're fine. We're on our own. Go home, see your family. And uh, he says, we've well, got to be careful. We were staying right off, right off of Taksim Square in the center of Istanbul in a little hotel. And so we went out and thought it was very safe. Um, saw lots of families, lots of little kids uh, all walking around. But we could tell that something was up. So there, there was some sort of kinetic energy in the air. And as we're walking, we got to this one spot where there's a bunch of young people all wearing the same T-shirt, and it's got something written on it. Of course, we don't read the language, don't understand anything. But, w- but we stopped there, and I said, wow, uh, something's going on right here. This is either political, or this is the most aggressive, multi-level marketing uh, recruitment effort I have ever seen in my life. And uh, we didn't know, but we asked our guide the next morning, and he said, oh, yeah, it's very, uh, very political. And as a matter of fact, a couple weeks after we got back, that was the epicenter. Right there, uh, Taxon Square where we were, was the epicenter of the, of the riot and the revolution that uh, was launched and eventually included about 3.5 million people in Turkey. Well, revolutions have to be about something. They have to be against something or they have to be for something. It's hard to get people to, to revolt just to revolt. Um, the revolution in Turkey was uh, a revolt against the secular government's movement more towards Islam. Uh, the American revolt, the American revolution, was, uh, was about or was against taxation without representation. The French revolution was against a certain way of life and a noble class of people. It was for uh, liberty and equality and fraternity. The, uh, the communist revolution in Russia and the cultural revolution in China said they were for the people. They were horribly against them, and tens if not hundreds of millions of people were killed by their own governments. Uh, generally speaking, those revolutions that promised to do the most good do the most bad. Now, the Christian revolution, the revolution that Jesus Christ launches, is an exception to that rule. And for that matter, the Christian revolution that we are focusing on is different in another sense as well. Because it is, uh, it is less about ideas and ideals than it is about a person. And in this sense, 
the Christian faith is different from, from religions because it's not principally about the teaching uh, of the founder. It's about the founder and uh, the work that he does. And so um, we're, gonna, we're going to be looking at that. And we see that whole idea really in this passage that was read for us this morning. Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ. He is the Lord's Messiah. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 9. By way of just a little bit more context, we are, um, we are about two and a half years into Jesus' three years of public ministry. It's hard to tell exactly, but that's the way most folks put it together. Jesus is wrapping up his, uh, his preaching and teaching in Galilee. We come to the high water mark of his ministry there up north, Peter's confession. And after this, Jesus will be turning towards uh, Jerusalem, and he'll begin his long sort of march in that direction. Now, we're not even halfway through the Gospel of Luke, um, and the reason is we still have a lot of the teaching of Jesus to get to, and Luke includes more than anyone else in terms of all the parables and the teachings of Jesus. And additionally, it's, we're not reading a biography, right? We're reading a gospel, and so there's a lot of, of the information that gets uh, backloaded. The last week of Christ's life, Holy Week, takes up a third of the gospel of Luke. So uh, we're, we still have got a long ways to go, but um, we come now to this very important passage. Now, Luke gives us an orderly account. That's his promise. He gives us the chronological gospel, but he doesn't give us an exhaustive gospel. And we can tell by looking at Matthew and Mark that Luke has left a lot out that happens between the feeding of the 5,000 and Peter's confession. And, and the reason is, is if you, if you really sort of study Luke and start to outline it, you see he's answering the question that Herod asked earlier in the chapter. You know, Herod says, who is this guy? What, what, what's going on here? Uh, and, and he says, I hear he's John the Baptist, but I killed him. I hear he's Elijah. Some say he's Jeremiah. Who is this man? And Luke is answering that question. First, he takes us to show us Christ's power and compassion in feeding the 5,000. Now we're going to come to Peter's confession, you are God's Messiah. And then next, we're going to go to the transfiguration where the glory of Christ is revealed. So we're getting an answer to this very important question. With that in mind, let, um, let me walk us through this. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Once, when the disciples, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, when we get to Luke 11, which will be just after Easter, we're going to take a little, the next little series that we'll be in, in, in Luke's gospel, will be on prayer. The disciples recognize prayer as being just this critical part of Christ's life and message and communication with God. They want to know how to do it. And so we're going to pause there for a, 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 little, a little expose on prayer. Um, for now, it will just simply note that Jesus is uh, repeatedly getting up early to go pray, he's staying up late to pray, he's slipping away during the middle of the day to pray. Jesus is, is all about um, getting time with his heavenly Father. And uh, uh, 
He no doubt would, would, would support the, the plea that I've made with you for 10 plus 10, 10 minutes a day of reading the Bible, 10 minutes a day of praying. But um, uh, he would see that as rather anemic. Um, Jesus doesn't make small asks. He makes really big asks. It's sort of, with Jesus, it's always, well, 100% of you, 100% of the time. That's what I'm after. So, um, but we see prayer here, and they ask him. Jesus was praying in private. The disciples are with him, and they come to him, and they say, he comes to him and says, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, the crowds here refers to the uncommitted masses that the disciples have just been out talking to. So we have two options here. Two things are, one of two things is happening. Either Jesus just doesn't uh, follow social media. He doesn't know what, uh, you know what stories are trending or who's retweeting what tweets. He's just not plugged in quite that way. So he needs to do a little market research, and he goes to the disciples for some input. Who, who do the crowds say that I am? That's option one. Option two is um, he knows who the crowds say that he is. He's asking this question because it is not just a question. It is the question, and he wants to push the disciples in this direction. This, again, is the question that Herod asked. Who is this man? And I would submit that it is the pivotal question of all time. Um, Larry King was asked upon his retirement who he, if he could interview anybody in history, who he'd interview and what, what one question he would ask. And he said that if he could interview anyone in history, he would interview the Virgin Mary and he would ask her, was it really a virgin birth? Uh, now, we would sort of clarify that and say it's the, the claim is not ultimately a virgin birth, it's a virgin conception. But okay, that's the question that he would ask. And King said, because on the basis of that one answer, I would know everything I need to know. Charles Malik, uh, a very distinguished uh, Lebanese uh, scholar and diplomat, uh, Malik had a Ph.D. from Harvard. He had 50 honorary doctorates from all the best schools. Uh, he published in just about every field, culture and politics and statesmanship, in, in journals in the United States and Europe and uh, the Middle East. He, uh, he's the only man, who, only person who's ever held the top five positions in the U.N. Uh, and he was a follower of Christ. And in the 1980s, he wrote a book called A Christian Critique of the University. And Malik argued that, uh, that there were, there were uh, a handful, there were seven different institutions out there. The family, the church, business, uh, the professions, uh, the media, and the university. And he said, of these, the most important is the university. You could argue that, but he said the university trains the leaders for every one of the other institutions. He then said the most critical question, the most important question consequently is, what does Jesus think of the university? Okay, I'd I'd push back just a little bit on Dr. Malik and say, I think the question, you're very close, but I think the question is just a little bit more basic than that. I think the question is, uh, who is Jesus? Because how you answer that question not only affects your beliefs, it, it, I would argue it ultimately affects your eternity. And Luke is trying to answer this question throughout the gospel. So 
In Luke chapter 2, we get an answer from the lips of Simeon and Anna when Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus to the temple. And, and there we hear that, um, the, or excuse me, in Luke chapter 2, it's the angels. In, in Luke chapter 3, it's Simeon and Anna. And there we hear that, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And um, we go to the next chapter and we get from John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In Luke chapter 4, we get an answer from Satan. Satan calls Jesus the Son of God. In Luke chapter 5, Peter calls Jesus Lord. In Luke 7, it's a sinful woman who identifies Christ as the Messiah and as God. In Luke 8, it's a demon that announces that he's the Son of the Most High God. If you read Luke, you see Jesus referred to as the Son of God, King, Savior, Christ, Lord, the Holy One, Son of Man, and the Son of the Most High. Luke is trying to make it clear to us who Jesus is. And, and here in Luke chapter 9, we, we get the answer from the disciples. So Jesus says, who do the crowd say that I am? And they go, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And we'll get more about Elijah next week. He gets more ink when we get to the transfiguration. Um, Moses and Elijah will be there with Jesus. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John a little bit further up the mountain. And then he is he is transfigured. So some sort of veil gets lifted and you see Christ. They get to see Christ in his glory. And both Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who's the greatest of the prophets, are there also. So we'll hear a little bit more about um, Elijah then. Suffice it to say, the crowd say the same thing that Herod had heard. But Jesus goes on and he, he asks, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Okay, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's, it's the, it is the Greek term for Messiah. So he says, you are the one. You are, the, the, you are God's Messiah. And the, and the phrasing here is a little bit uh, awkward and interesting. He, he uses a term that is going to remind a first century reader of one of two passages. One would be Luke chapter 4, where Jesus, after he comes out of the wilderness, right, he gets baptized by John, goes into the wilderness, he comes out, he starts preaching. He makes his way eventually to Nazareth, his hometown, goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath. They give him a text to read. It's Isaiah 61. He reads it, he sits down, and he says, today, right, this passage has been fulfilled in your presence. I'm the anointed one. I'm the one Isaiah was writing about hundreds of years ago. So there's, there's clear reference to Isaiah 61, or perhaps because of this possessive, the way it, it occurs in the Greek, you're the Lord's Messiah. Uh, it's a weird little construction. That's how Simeon answered back in, uh, in Luke chapter 2. That's where, uh, that's where we... He's, he's promised by God that he will not die until he's seen the Lord's Christ. And so uh, Peter says, you are uh, the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the one everybody's been talking about. You're the one everybody's been waiting for. You're the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Um, so what does Jesus say when, when Peter makes this announcement? Does he say, no, 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 Peter, that's too much, right? That's blasphemy. No, it's not that. No, he doesn't. 
Jesus agrees with that statement. In Alpha, this past week, I read a C.S. Lewis passage that, uh, that speaks exactly to this point. Lewis notes that there are two small subsets uh, and that the, there's only one person who is in both of them. One subset are the, the founders of the major religions or ethical systems. Okay, so uh, Jesus and, and Muhammad and Confucius and Socrates and you know, whoever you want to put in that camp. And then this, this circle, this is the subset of all those people who claim to be God. Okay, a small number, 99.9% of whom end up institutionalized. Jesus is the only one who is the founder of a, of a major religion, the founder of an ethical system, and claims to be God. And Lewis writes about this, and he says, There is no halfway house and no parallel in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still under the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, Are you Allah? He would have first tore his clothes and then cut off your head. But when, but when Jesus asked Peter who Peter thought he was, and Peter responded, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Jesus agreed. So Jesus agrees with this statement. So what happens next? Um, something a little bit... Uh, unexpected for the disciples. Reading on, verse 21. Um, Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. So, um, Peter gets the right answer, but instead of being encouraged, uh, he's told, don't say anything to anyone. Now, why would, why would Jesus say that? Well, it's because of the, of the dynamic uh, moment that they're in. The Jews are really, really frustrated with Roman occupation. And they are, they are of one track in terms of what the Messiah is going to do. If you read the Old Testament, there are, there are sort of three different themes that get developed around the Messiah. One is sort of king, military leader, sort of fits in the footsteps of David. That's the one they liked. A second was of a suffering servant. We see this with Isaiah 53, right? The, you know, this whole idea of a, of a lamb that's being led to slaughter. And then there's a third set of ideas around the Messiah that are very mystical. And um, I've said this before, but it's hard when you see the prophecies in the Bible, in the Old Testament, to know how they're going to be fulfilled until they're fulfilled. Then you go, oh, now I get it, right? I can take that backwards. I I didn't see it before, but now that someone's pointed it out to me, I get it. Well, in fairness to the the Jews of the first century, it was very hard to uh, imagine how one person was going to be this mystical person, was going to be this suffering servant, and a conquering king. Until you see Jesus. And then you go, oh, now I get it. I see how he pulls all three of those strands together. Well, the Jews were just ignoring the second and third. All they focused on was the Messiah is going to be a king and a military leader, and he's going to defeat Rome and put us back in power. 
And that's not what Jesus is interested in doing. And he's, he's got a much bigger agenda than that. So he says uh, to Peter, you can't, you, know, you can't go out there claiming that I am the Messiah because that's going to create expectations that I have no interest in fulfilling. But he goes on and he says, uh, verse 22, and he said, the Son of Man, okay, he's referring to himself, and, and the Son of Man is a, um, it sounds so modest, as opposed to saying, I'm the Son of God, which sounds very big, Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man, which sounds, I don't know, sounds different, but who knows what it means. Well, not many did, but those who knew what it meant saw it very clearly as a claim to be God. In Daniel chapter 7, um, verse 13, it says, this is Daniel, he says, in my vision I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, this would be God the Father, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given, this is the Son of Man, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, those who are dialed in understand this is a huge claim that he's making. So Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised back to life. So, again, this, <laughs> this is not what Peter was expecting. Right? The, the, the idea that Jesus is king sort of implies right, nice things. I'm, I'm behind in uh, my reading of People magazine, but I am aware that Kate is pregnant. And uh, why am I aware of this? Because right, it's another... Uh, another person in line to be king. And with kings or queens comes gold and silver and pageantry and nice things. And so Peter and the disciples are thinking, Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one that's promised. That means power and glory and accolades and everything. And Jesus says, no, um, Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and uh, must be killed and then on the third day raised to life. Then, verse 23, then he said to them all, and listen to this as if Jesus is saying this to you because in one very specific sense, he is. He's saying this to all of us. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now this last part of it, uh, is a little confusing to some because it, it sounds as though while these people who are hearing this directly from Christ, uh, while they're still alive, 
Christ is going to come in all the fullness of his power and glory, the return of Christ. That obviously has not happened, hasn't happened yet. That's not what it's referencing. It's either referencing, some say it's referencing Pentecost. Most scholars think that what he's referencing here is the transfiguration. Some, Peter, James, and John, uh, in eight days are going to be invited to see Christ in his glory, right, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so what do, what do, we, what do we hear from this passage? Uh, there's three points that I want to make. Number one, uh, Jesus is God. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember this is the same first point I had last week. And it will not be the last time that I make this the point because this is the point. This is the reason Luke is writing this gospel. He's been doing his investigation, traveling all over, interviewing eyewitnesses, visiting the, the scenes of what happens. He's pulled together a report, and it's very clear his report is designed to persuade people that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, he's the way forward. We need to be his followers and uh, disciples. I emphasize this because it's the big message in Luke. I emphasize this because from time to time I hear people claim that Jesus doesn't ever actually claim to be God. Now, it's, it is technically correct that in the first century, the Jews did not understand that the Messiah would be God. Right? That, was, that was new information to them. But we have to we have to, to see Jesus is making a half dozen very clear claims to be God. He's making them in the way the people who are listening to him understand. He claims to be the Son of Man. Right? He's going to claim to have power to forgive sins. Completely do away with the whole sacrificial system in the temple. Right? He has the power to forgive sins. As a matter of fact, he claims to be the temple. The intersection of God and man on earth. Right? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Right? He, he is, he is going to claim to be the one who was present at creation and everything comes from him. He's going to claim to be one with the Father. He, he's going to be put to death for blasphemy. Now the Romans will charge him with sedition, but the, but the Jewish leaders who want Christ put to death want him put to death because he claims to be God. So... Um, it's, it's clear to anyone who takes the time to look, Jesus is making the claim to be God. Second thing we need to understand is that um, Peter does not really know what he said. Um, like, um, I suspect, like many of you, I took uh, a year of calculus in high school and another year of calculus in college. I have no idea why. Because the next calculus problem I do will be the very first calculus problem I've ever done in my life. I wouldn't recognize a calculus problem today if it sat down in front of me. And I've uh, talked about this in the past, and I whine about this from time to time, because I wasn't a very good calculus student. I had to put in a lot of time. And in high school, the way it worked was the teacher would give out an assignment every day at the end of class, and it was an hour, two hours of, of struggling with these calculus problems. And then the next day, he would call on people, and you wanted to get called on early because the first questions were easy. 
and then they got progressively harder as you worked your way down the, the list. So in the beginning, everybody you know, had their hands raised, calling me, calling me, I want, to get, I want to get credit today, and I don't want to be called on later. There were a couple students who, and everybody knew who they were, you knew who they were starting in fifth grade, that they, they were the ones that we might have an answer at the end, you know, questions 8, 9, and 10, they were the ones that might be able to answer it. I was not one of those students. Well, one night I, I went to this event, and I had taken my calculus book with me, thinking, hoping I might have a chance to work on it, and there were some students from other high schools there, and um, I knew this one one guy, one kid, he was really, really bright, and, uh, and I ended up sitting down next to him, and we're talking. He sees my calculus, but he goes, oh, well, what chapter are you on? And I go this. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. He goes, I've worked a little ahead. And I go, hey, you know, would you do my, would you do my, uh, my homework for me? This guy will later go on to get a, a Ph.D. in some very bizarre field at MIT and get hired by the government to work on issues of national security uh, for, a, for uh, a government agency that he didn't really want to tell me what it was, right? So that's, that's who this, this guy becomes. And he goes, sure, I can do your homework. So he sits down and he scribbles out all the answers. And he gets to the last problem, and it's a little challenging, and he works on it a little while. And then he says, he goes, okay, and, and number 10 is four-thirds pi. I still remember the answer, four-thirds pi. And I, I asked him on that, I go, well, tell me what you did. And he goes, well, what you're trying to figure out is the uh, volume of a deflated football. So perhaps he's working for the New England Patriots. I don't know. I lost touch with him. But I asked him how he did it, right? And he tries to explain it to me, but I, I have just, it's not clicking. I ask a couple times, and then I act like I understand it. And I go to class the next day. And uh, I'm not raising my hand at the beginning, and we sort of go through the whole, uh, the whole uh, class, and it gets down to the last question, and, and anybody, you know, and he asks by name, uh, Steve, Steve McBurney, Tina, no, Tina Groves, uh, Tracy, Tracy Hill, no, none of them have it. And so then I raise my hand, and he goes, yeah, and I said, you know, like, he's not calling on me for the answer, you know, he goes, yeah, and I go, uh, the answer's four-thirds pi. And there's just, like, silence in the class. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, well, it's, you're just trying to figure out the volume of a deflated football. He goes, yeah, right, I get that. He goes, but how did you do it? So about six different times I repeat that you're just trying to figure out the volume of a deflated football. That's all I've got. And eventually uh, I'm forced to concede that although I had the right answer, I didn't understand the right answer. That's really what's going on with Peter here. He gives the right answer. You are God's Messiah. You are the Lord's Christ. Right? That's the right answer. But as we're going to see later on, uh, Peter doesn't really know what he's saying. Now, in, in fairness to Peter, um, the Jews were the last people on earth that, that could be expected to wrap their mind around Jesus. And that's because um, they, every day, uh, you know, uh, an Orthodox, a pious Jew would repeat the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right? There is one God. The Jews were considered to be atheists by all the other groups, right? Because they all had tens of gods, hundreds, tens of hundreds of gods. 
The Jews had one God. And so the idea was there is one God. He is holy. He is righteous. He is removed in heaven. I can't get close to him. I can go into the temple, but I, I can't even get close to the temple. And the high priest, once, one day a year after certain sacrifices, can, can approach uh, you know, God's presence on earth, but nobody can go into the presence of God. So the Jews are expected, right, with Jesus to think there's one God, he's in heaven, he's righteous, he's holy, he's removed, and this guy I'm standing next to is also God. Right? It will take them a long time to, to be able to, to just say that. And, and even then what we'll see is they, they don't even try to explain it. They just go, I'm sure that this is God. I don't get it, but this is God and there is one God. So Peter is one of the last ones um, to have a hope or a chance uh, to figure out what he is saying. And in fact, what Matthew will record, Luke doesn't, but what Matthew will record is that when Peter says, you are the Lord's Christ, that Jesus will say, (laughs) in essence, what my math teacher said to me, right? You got that answer from somebody else. Uh, and in, in, in Matthew, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, that was his name at that point for just another minute, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Right? That answer is beyond you. you. You don't get what you said. You're right, but you don't get what you said. The third point um, that, that I want to make, and with this we begin to move towards communion, um, I'll be brief, is just... Suffering is expected for Jesus and for those who are following him. Um, Having heard that he is the Messiah, the disciples are thinking, again, power, glory, honor, uh, victory, political freedom, life of ease, right? And and what Jesus says is, uh, in essence, those things are coming, but what's up next is hard. And he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to my death. I'll, I'll, be, I'll come back to life after three days, but I'm going to my death. And then he lays out this call to sacrifice and service, right? To be part of this revolution that he's launching. And he basically says, it's going to be hard. <laughs> the way up is down, right? You're thinking it's all going to be easy and glory and fun. And what I'm calling you to is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and do the right thing. Love and serve others. That's your marching orders. And uh, I've I've been thinking lately, wrestling lately with this idea that, uh, that the way it's set up is such that, that Christ has to die for us. And I understand that he has to die for us because it's the only way that a God who is holy and righteous and just and loving could work this out. If God wasn't committed to being just, right, then he could just ignore our sins and and redeem us. But he couldn't do that and remain holy and righteous. And so the only way out is this unbelievable idea that God is going to bear our penalty, pay our debt himself, and God the Father sends God the Son. I get that. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's amazing. But I've been wondering, was there any other way? Why did it have to be that way? Could God have arranged it a different way? And 
it strikes me that for all of eternity, we will have the opportunity to reflect on, on the goodness of God. And the only way we really get a picture of how good God is, is through Christ's death on the cross. I mean, we can be told that God is really, 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 really good and holy and loving. But that's still not as powerful as that being displayed for us by Christ's death on the cross. And in the same way, we're promised that in the end, God's kingdom will come. Everything's going to work. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be glorious. Right now, we have an opportunity to do things that will matter for eternity, to be part of the revolution. They're not easy. It's not easy to love and serve others. But that is the great opportunity that we have been given. And I invite you to reflect on that uh, as I pray and as we begin uh, to prepare our hearts for communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for opportunities in various ways and shapes to, um, to reflect on your goodness and your care for us. Your love is amazing, and uh, we marvel at uh, your love and your care for us. And we invite you to be with us now as we uh, reflect again on the death of Christ, the revolutionary who um, set in motion your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite the communion servers to come forward, and as they are doing that, um, I want to say that... um, at so many levels, the decision of God uh, to become a man and to die in our place is amazing, unthinkable. Um, it's not surprising that it's very hard for those who were in the first century to wrap their arms around this idea that God has shown up and is walking among them and he's there principally to die in their place. But that is at the heart of the good news of the gospel, that we can be forgiven not because we've tried hard, not because we've been successful, right? Not because we're good, because we're not, but because God is loving. And so we come again to this table to remember and to celebrate Christ's death. Um, In a moment, you will receive a tray, and we invite you to take both the bread and the cup. If you're a follower of Christ, you do not need to be a member of this local congregation. Um, If you're a follower of Christ and you're willing to enter into a time of reflection and prayer, then we invite you to come to this table, which we do, Uh, not simply out of habit, but also out of obedience and need, to focus and remind ourselves about how desperately we need Christ and his work, even that we would take him into our body. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, invite you to join in a time of reflection. Heavenly Father, for your love that's on display in front of us, we thank you. Lord Jesus, for your death in our place, we thank you and praise you. Spirit of God, meet with us. Help us to understand all of this in new ways and to see ourselves in our sin and our brokenness um, and your love and glory in clearer ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.